Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. Episode 25, The Esoteric Plato. Last week, we introduced the single most important esoteric thinker in Western history, Plato. But what's so esoteric about Plato? In this episode, we'll try to give some preliminary answers to this question. Of course, a lot depends on what we mean when we say esoteric. And so maybe the time has come to define this term for the purposes of the podcast. This is the secret history of Western esotericism, after all. And if we can't say what we mean by esotericism, we're in trouble. Our best bet here is to take a mainstream, uncomplicated definition. The Concise Oxford Dictionary of Current English, 1990, defines esoteric as meant only for the initiated. While this definition might not cover every byway we will encounter in our exploration of this complex theme, it does pretty well for the basics. That which is esoteric is that which is meant only for a certain group of people, excluding others. Obviously, the term initiated is a bit mystery cultish, and we might not be speaking of the mystery cults every time we talk about esotericism, but it's actually fortuitous that the Oxford folks have used this term in their definition, because it's precisely in Plato that the concept of initiatic mystery is transferred to the conceptual field of philosophic knowledge. And this transference will have a very long history in Western esotericism. As we shall see in our discussions of dialogues such as the Phaedrus and the Symposium, Plato takes the philosophic use of mystery culture, which we've already seen in authors like Parmenides and Empedocles, in the movement known as Pythagoreanism, and puts his defining stamp on it. From Plato's time onwards, the idea that doing philosophy, and that's doing philosophy in an extended sense, is a kind of initiation, would become a fairly commonplace idea. So let us understand initiated here in this extended sense. Now, how does this esotericism differ from the practice of secrecy? Surely the act of keeping secrets also implies a group in the know and another group that's excluded. Indeed. The answer to this question is two-part. The first part has to do with the rhetorics of secrecy and silence, the ways in which esoteric authors and thinkers make it known that they have a secret wisdom worth having. Social capital and prestige come into this side of esotericism. But we'll be discussing this more later on in the podcast. For now, I'd like to note a second aspect of the difference between plain old secrecy and esotericism. When we speak of esotericism, we're nearly always speaking not just of privileged knowledge, but of privileged wisdom. The idea is that what is being hidden isn't simply hidden, say, for practical purposes like military secrets or pin numbers. It's hidden because it is the kind of knowledge of a higher order than the usual run-of-the-mill knowledge. It's wisdom in the strong sense of the term. It may well be truth with a capital T. Your PIN number may be valuable, if there's anything in your bank account, but it isn't one of the ultimate secrets of the universe. Esoteric wisdom is. Or at least, that's the idea. So that's esotericism. The practice of keeping special wisdom or knowledge only for an initiated group. Or being seen to do so. Now, did Plato do this? That is a good question. But as this episode develops, you'll see that it's actually a very difficult question to answer. So instead of answering it straight away, 
let's have a look at who thinks he did and who thinks he didn't to get a model of Plato's esotericism as perceived down the ages. The picture which emerges is quite interesting and tells us a lot about Western esotericism. We have a consensus, mostly complete consensus, from about the 1st century BCE up until the 20th century, that Plato used his literary art to hide his true meanings within the dialogues. In fact, he became proverbial for this. One could speak in the early modern period of writing more platonico in the platonic fashion, and it was understood that this meant seeming to write one thing whilst actually concealing a different, deeper meaning within your words. We can cite the Platonists here. We can cite St. Augustine and many other church fathers. We can cite the medieval Islamic traditions about Plato, which are a fascinating and understudied field, which we shall be exploring later in the podcast. We can cite the Renaissance Platonists like Ficino and others. We could cite Giambattista Vico, Thomas Taylor, Leo Strauss, Walter Burkert, and various modern schools of Platonic interpretation within academia. We would, in fact, be hard-pressed to find a dissenting voice in our period until the late 18th century. But there are some gaps here. What about the period between Plato's own time and the first century, the late Hellenistic period leading up to the Roman Empire? And what about nowadays, at the other end of this um, period? Has this consensus that Plato was esoteric disappeared, or what? Well, let's start with antiquity, and then we'll get to the modern decline of the esoteric reading of Plato in due course. As has been pointed out by scholars who want to deny that Plato was an esotericist, we have no direct evidence from Plato's time until the late Hellenistic period that people held this view that he was an esotericist. There is some circumstantial evidence which might indicate that some folks did, but we don't have actually anyone coming out and saying Plato hides his true meaning until pretty late, the first century BCE. So what's going on here? Well, off the record, I suspect that people did think that this was the case during our period of silence, and you'll see why shortly. But on the record, we have to stick to the evidence which survives. In terms of the record, the esoteric Plato didn't exist from Plato's death in the fourth century until the first century BCE. So there's a few centuries there where, as far as we can tell, people were reading Plato as a philosopher who actually said what he seemed to be saying. We could also look here at what became of the Academy of Plato in these intervening centuries. As we saw last week, the Academy evolved after a brief period of what's known as the Early Academy, when you had dogmatic thinkers like Speusippus and Xenocrates laying out what they took to be the doctrines of metaphysics and epistemology found in Plato, into what is known as the Skeptical Academy. These were philosophers who doubted that absolute truths existed at all. Not in the first instance, the sorts of people who'd go looking for a secret doctrine of absolute truth, you'd think. Basically, as far as we can tell, the esoteric Plato is born in the first century BCE, and is, by the first century CE, more or less the accepted view. Although we have again reason to suspect that there were some dissenting voices who thought the whole idea of an esoteric Plato was silly right through antiquity. Now, this rise in esoteric interpretation coincides with the rise of something which took place outside the academy, which was the formal school at Athens, with notional continuity of teaching going back to Plato. 
This was the broad movement which we know now as Platonism. So what is Platonism? This is a term we've already been using in the podcast, but the time has come to define it for our purposes. The term is actually, perhaps surprisingly, difficult to define. And no one in the academic study of Platonism ever really bothers to define it, which can lead to a confusing array of different usages. One minute, Platonism refers to a specific, strictly defined ancient philosophic lineage, people like Plutarch, Numenius, Plotinus, Proclus, etc. And the next minute, it refers to anyone who believes in an immortal soul or in immaterial forms. So it's very common to find For example, medieval Christian thinkers described as Platonists, like this uh, idea of the ideas in the mind of God is, of course, Platonism. So a kind of atemporal, structural view of what Platonism is. But generally speaking, Platonism in the specialist context of the history of philosophy is a name modern scholars have given to a range of ancient philosophical movements and individual thinkers. The crucial thing that links them at least in my opinion, is that they base their thought on ideas found in the dialogues of Plato, and they treat Plato as an author with a dogmatic teaching. As we've already seen, it's by no means a foregone conclusion that Plato had such a teaching, since his true meanings in the dialogues can be so elusive, and sometimes it's impossible to say with certainty whether he really is arguing for a point or just playing with ideas, and the whole problem of Socratic irony makes things even more difficult to pin down. The Skeptical Academy are not Platonists by this definition, even though they saw themselves as following in Plato's footsteps. Because they do not read Plato as though he's teaching the truth, they read him more for a skeptical methodology, which his Socrates exemplifies in the Aporetic Dialogues. For a Platonist, by way of contrast, and remember that Platonism that we're talking about arises later than the Skeptical Academy, sometime in the first century BCE, but really getting underway in the first century CE, the imperial period. For a Platonist, Plato did have a teaching, and moreover, one which was correct. So anyone who matches that particular set of beliefs, following Plato and arguing that he is a dogmatic thinker, is what scholars tend to mean by Platonist, and that is what we're going to mean by Platonist in our discussions going forward. There are borderline cases, such as Philo of Alexandria, who is a Jewish Platonist philosopher, but we'll deal with them on their own terms in later episodes when we talk about Philo and other thinkers. So something which Platonists mostly also had in common is the belief that Plato hid his true meaning, that he was an esotericist. The surface meaning of a Platonic dialogue is indeed a good place to seek wisdom for a Platonist, but you should not be satisfied with that deeper hermeneutics are needed to plumb the depths of Plato's thought. I call this type of interpretation esoteric reading. That is the act of reading an author as though they were writing esoterically, with a message intended only for an elect group who can understand it. And we can note in passing here that the esoteric reader, the interpreter, always belongs to this group by definition, since they are the ones finding the secret meaning. Note that no esotericism is implied in the original writer. It should be clear that esoteric reading is possible whether or not the original author was an esotericist. As we shall discuss in the following episode, many Platonists read Homer, the ancient epic poet, 
with an esoteric hermeneutic, finding hidden within his seemingly absurd or innocuous myths secret metaphysical doctrines which, surprise surprise, were Platonist doctrines. But we don't have to believe that Homer really meant to hide these things within his text, and in fact nobody believes that nowadays. However, the story is different with Plato. With Plato, while the tide of university scholarship in Anglo-American academe, at least, has undoubtedly turned away from esotericism, reading Plato as a tricky philosopher, but not one with an intentionally hidden subtext, there remains a strong and, it must be said, respectable current within Platonic scholarship, which sees Plato as most definitely engaged in intentional esotericism. And we shall return to these scholars shortly. So we see in the movements known collectively as Platonism in antiquity, the rise of a way of reading Plato as an esoteric author. This became the rule. We can cite Philo, straddling the first centuries BCE and CE, Plutarch and Numenius of Apamea a bit later, and Apuleius, as so-called Middle Platonists who definitely believe that Plato was an esotericist, along with a number of others who probably did so, but don't leave us direct evidence of this, so we have to be careful. People like Celsus. And among the later Platonists, it's accepted across the board as a given that Plato wrote esoterically. Proclus refers to some philosophic readers of Plato whom he calls the literalists, and we can probably safely say that these represented holdouts for the view that Plato just said what he said on the surface of the dialogues. Tricky, yes, but not esoteric. But their work doesn't survive, nor do they seem to have made much of a splash in their day. The esoteric reading of Plato won out. Diogenes Laertius, the philosophic biographer, whom we've been citing a lot in recent episodes, asserts Platonic esotericism as a matter of course. Now, the question arises of why people read Plato this way. Well, here it gets interesting, because although I'm all for a healthy skepticism when people start going on about secret hidden subtexts, because you can find a secret hidden subtext in just about anything if you give it a go, at the same time, it does sometimes seem like Plato is begging us to read him esoterically. There are a few main reasons I say this. The first is the overarching use of literary masks in his work, to which we alluded in the last episode. If Plato just wanted to lay down a doctrine, he could have gone about it in a fairly straightforward way, you'd think. Instead, he delivers baffling dialogues, some of which end on a note of aporia, and others of which lay out complex theoretical constructions involving metaphysics, epistemology, and much else. It's very hard to read the aporetic dialogues and these uh, more doctrinal dialogues as all part of the same project with no contradictions. The dialogues sometimes seems to be at odds with one another. This has led most modern scholars to posit a strong development in Plato's thought over time. Basically, he changed his mind in the course of his career, so of course the dialogues tell different stories as time goes on. For the esoteric reader, these seeming contradictions are of course an invitation to find the underlying unity hidden within the seeming contradictions. In a process which I find to be fundamentally the same as the process of reading whereby esoteric religious readers use hidden meanings to harmonize apparent contradictions in their scriptures. That thing in the Bible where Goliath of Gath is killed by the young King David in these accounts, but by Elhanan, the son of Yare Oregim, in that account, 
we referred to this particular biblical hiccup in our introductory episode on Judaism, these accounts might be taken by Kabbalists as having an esoteric teaching behind them, which explains why they're written that way. Similarly, the Platonic dialogue, the Parmenides, which many modern scholars see as Plato's final reckoning with his own theory of forms, wherein he has the character of Parmenides attack the theory so viciously that he basically demolishes it completely, was for the late Platonists the metaphysical dialogue par excellence. Only you had to read it in the right way. And of course, it wasn't saying that the theory of forms was wrong. Quite the opposite, in fact. So Plato's literary masks and the fact that he never speaks in propria persona make things tricky and seem to open the door to an esoteric reading. The perhaps irreducible disagreement of modern interpreters over what Plato meant is a testament to this literary situation. All the really burning questions of Platonic scholarship, such as that of Plato's doctrine or absence thereof, the chronological order of the dialogues, and the extent and nature of Socratic irony in the dialogues, are made more intractable by Plato's literary choice to write drama and to hide behind multiple masks. But it gets worse, or better, depending on your perspective. Plato has numerous passages where he specifically attacks the written word itself as a mode for conveying the truth. He gives several reasons for this, notably that certain truths are not hidden, but rather must be kept from students until the proper time in their development when they're able to understand them. You just shouldn't hear certain doctrines until you're ready for them. Or, alternately, the written word is out of the hands of the writer and can go on to be misused, or unphilosophic people may mock the truth when it is expressed openly in writing. This might be called the pearls before swine motive for esotericism. Or, people might kill you for speaking the truth, as they killed Socrates, so you have to be very careful about publication. But Plato also attacks writing more generally, especially in the Phaedrus, bigging up the face-to-face -face practice of philosophic dialectic as the proper mode for education. And let us remember that all of this critique of the written word is taking place through, yep, the written word. Think about that. And then reflect on the fact that Plato was absolutely no dummy and perfectly aware of the inherent contradiction here. So we might be forgiven for taking Plato seriously when in the seventh Platonic letter, and remember the letters are the one place where we do get Plato's real words, or at least he writes under his own name for once. Although, as you'd expect, no one can agree on the authenticity of certain of the Platonic letters, including the crucial seventh letter, which we're about to talk about. When he tells us in the seventh letter that he has never written down his true doctrine on the highest matters of philosophy, and that he never will, because, quote, it is not at all speakable like other subjects of study, but from much working together on the matter itself, and living in company, suddenly a light, as it were leaping from fire, kindles in the soul, and thenceforth grows on its own. End of quote. So the highest truth is simply not speakable, but arises somehow through the process of doing philosophy in company with other philosophers, and then once it's been kindled, it dwells like a fire burning in the soul. Nice. Now, if we do take this seriously, I mean, if we take it literally, the quest ends here. We shouldn't expect truth from Plato's dialogues. 
But no one, neither the esoteric Platonists of antiquity nor modern scholars, is willing just to throw away the greatest literary philosophical achievement in history as some kind of game to be ignored. Plato is clearly at least trying to tell us things in the dialogues. Maybe they aren't the ultimate truth, and that might not be expressible in words anyway, if we take the seventh letter seriously, but there has to be something pretty weighty there all the same for him to have gone to such trouble. Nevertheless, using written dialogues to attack the practice of writing is a frustrating thing for Plato to have done. And we can't just ignore the fact that Plato does this on some plausible-seeming grounds like, oh, well, he means that writing is not as good as oral teaching, but it's, it's still good. And that's the sort of thing we sometimes hear from Platonic scholars in modern academe who basically want to brush aside this particular glaring contradiction and get on with the business, and I mean quite literally the business, of manufacturing new analytic interpretations of various Platonic arguments and so forth. This is the Plato industry in academia. But that isn't what Socrates says in the Phaedrus, nor what the dialogue The Laws tells us, nor indeed what the seventh epistle is telling us. They're telling us that writing is bad news. In writing. Of course, the seventh epistle may be spurious, or the so-called philosophic interlude in the middle of the seventh epistle, which contains the bit we've just been quoting, uh, may be spurious. So maybe Plato had a point here. Once you've written something down, like say he wrote his seventh letter, it really is out of your hands, and people will run with it and take it in all kinds of crazy directions, including potentially forging new bits or misreading esoteric meanings into it which you didn't intend at all. But then if that's all true, why didn't Plato just put down his pen and teach orally like Socrates? The Platonic call to orality and rejection of writing is a call for us to doubt everything we think we can say about Plato's ideas as found in the dialogues. So we should take it seriously, even if it just makes us doubt that we can say anything about Plato's meaning. A good aporia, after all, is a positive Socratic outcome. There's one other crucial piece of evidence, which isn't in the dialogues, and which casts the whole question into even deeper confusion. And this is the testimony for the Platonic lecture on the good. This one's a doozy, so check this out. As is well known, Aristotle was a student of Plato's for many years. And as is well known, Aristotle went on to become a teacher himself and had a student called Aristoxenus, who wrote on many things, but principally his work on music theory survives. And in fact, the surviving fragments of his On Harmony are our single best source for Greek music theory at the time, and we shall be returning to the subject again when we consider the mind-blowing problem of musical esotericism in Plato. There's a little cliffhanger for you. Now, in his book on harmony, Aristoxenus recounts that Aristotle used to tell his students about a lecture that Plato gave in Athens. This was an open lecture for anyone who wanted to come listen, and it came to be called On the Good. Peritagathu. Aristotle, Aristoxenus tells us, used to describe the audience's bafflement when, expecting to hear something pertaining to normal human goods, things like wealth, health, strength, etc., they were instead regaled with, quote, mathematics, numbers, 
geometry, astronomy, and finally, that the good is one. End of quote. Oh, and the well-known doctrine of the indefinite dyad, Aristotle tells us, was also revealed in the lecture. And the indefinite dyad never appears in the dialogues at all, but becomes um, an important doctrine in later Platonism. Now, what on earth is going on here? There's no particular reason to doubt Aristoxenus's testimony here, and crucial evidence from the extant works of Aristotle back this up. People agree that the lecture really occurred. So what the hell was Plato doing? He was obviously laying down some number-based metaphysics of some kind, and the good being one makes sense if you are a late Platonist. So does that mean that the late Platonists were right in thinking Plato was a continuer of the Pythagorean tradition, that he taught a doctrine of a one or good from which all things arise, and so on and so forth? That's what everyone thought for centuries. But modern Plato scholars, in some camps anyway, tend to deny all of this, or at least seriously qualify it. And note that this was not a delivery of esoteric doctrine on Plato's part. Quite the opposite. It was a public lecture, and it seemingly baffled everyone present, or at least a lot of the people who were present. So we're not dealing here with a hand-picked audience of initiates, whom you might expect would know what you mean when you start talking about the good being one, but rather a bunch of schmoes who wouldn't know the good with a capital G if it bit them on the ass. So why would the fact that it is one even interest them? Surely this is exactly the situation Plato tells us to watch out for, putting deep philosophic insights on public display where morons can misunderstand them and have a good laugh at your expense if they don't have you killed on charges of impiety. So the lecture on the good seems to fly in the face of any cogent theory of Platonic esotericism that we might care to construct. Let's say Plato really did distrust the highest matters of philosophy to the written word and thought that they should only be presented to students who were ready to receive them. Does this mean that the insights of mathematics and the unity of the good and all the rest are not the real insights of Plato? and that he had some further true esoteric doctrine, or perhaps an ineffable doctrine? Or if these were his real doctrines that he presented in On the Good, as has been thought by most interpreters until modern times, why then deliver them to an audience of the Athenian man in the street? The mind boggles, and we just don't know the answers here, although plenty of scholars have had a go at trying to figure it out. Now, the oneness of the good or the identity of the good and the one, the importance of mathematics for understanding reality, and the idea of the indefinite dyad, all become standard Platonist doctrines, to which we shall return when we discuss Platonism. So it's clear that Plato's teachings, as delivered in the lecture, didn't just disappear. They had a long afterlife, possibly passed down and interpreted in the writings of the early academy, which are unfortunately lost to us today, so we don't actually know. But what possible relationship can we draw between these ideas and the dialogues? We see some familiar faces here. The form of the good in the Republic, which we shall be discussing, seems sort of a good candidate for the good here. See what I did there? And the one of the Parmenides, the dialogue of the Parmenides, is a pretty striking one. And the mathematics come into the dialogues a lot in places like in the Mino and elsewhere the Timaeus, which we'll be discussing soon. But nowhere do we find these doctrines in the dialogues. Unless, that is, we do find them hidden within 
the dialogues. The late Platonists certainly found them there. And this brings us to the great modern esotericist-anti-esotericist debate. This is a debate that took place in the latter half of the 20th century in high-level academic study of Plato. And here's an abridged summary of the debate. As we've seen, the late Platonist reading of Plato as an esoteric writer was dominant from late antiquity right up until modern times. Friedrich Schleiermacher was probably the most important modern scholar to ask at the end of the 18th century critical questions about the relationship between Plato and his interpreters and whether we should really think that a Plotinus had a sound grasp of what Plato was trying to do. Schleiermacher says, no, he didn't. Um, and this whole esoteric reading of Plato is very questionable. Schleiermacher's insight and the work of other scholars led to a lot of critical reassessment of Plato throughout the 19th century. But there remained a prevailing idea that Plato wrote esoterically in some way. It's just about the only way to square all the evidence, unless we want to make the dialogues into some kind of elaborate joke without real philosophic meaning, or we want to posit a very strong development in Plato's thought so that the findings of early dialogues he later figured out were wrong and goes on to update his vision as time goes on. In 1945, an American scholar called Harold Chernus published an influential book entitled The Riddle of the Early Academy. In part one of this book, Plato's Lectures, A Hypothesis for an Enigma, Chernus takes a strongly reductionist stance toward the relevant evidence for interpreting the dialogues. Basically, nothing counts except what's in the dialogues themselves. We can more or less ignore the lecture on the good, and the seventh letter, and the later interpretations of the Platonists. This position, in its broad strokes, was taken up by authors like Gregory Vlastos and Ian Tigerstedt, and it came to be very dominant in Anglo-American scholarship of Plato, and elsewhere. Meanwhile, in the esotericist corner, we have a monumental work by one's Hans Joachim Kramer, a scholar at the University of Tübingen, Arrêté by Platon und Aristoteles, published in 1959, which argued that we must consider the evidence for the lecture on the good and other bits and bobs, which can be gleaned about Plato's unwritten doctrines, and use them to tease out the underlying metaphysical teachings in the dialogues. In other words, Plato was esoteric in his writing, and we can use all the evidence at our disposal to penetrate the veil of esotericism and find out his true meaning. Other authors like Konrad Geiser, Giovanni Reale, and Thomas Slizak uh, rallied to this cause, and thus was born the so-called Tübingen Schule, a.k.a. the Esoterics, with a capital E. Now, I've oversimplified everything here, but that's okay. We're just doing a brief survey of some broad movements within scholarship. And we may note that the sides of the debate often oversimplify as well. So Tigerstedt, for example, accuses the Tübingen Schule of reviving the Neoplatonic reading of Plato. Well, in fact, they're not doing this. While agreeing with the ancient thinkers like Plotinus and Proclus that one must read the dialogues with an eye to subtle or even hidden meanings, they actually come to very modern conclusions about Plato's actual teaching. In other words, the metaphysics they find in Plato is not the metaphysics that the late Platonists find in Plato. And Geyser, on the esotericist side, 
to take an opposing critique as an example, is somewhat disingenuous when representing Chernus's arguments against the esoteric reading. So he makes Chernus out to be a little more deaf to subtleties than he really is. At the end of the day, I'm quite happy as a scholar to put the question of Plato's intentions in the dialogues into a bin marked insoluble and to concentrate instead on the amazing uses to which Plato's thought was put by later esoteric thinkers, regardless of what Plato himself meant. I'm very doubtful that we can really get at what Plato meant. Or at least, if we do reach a conclusion for ourselves, I feel like the ability to put it on a footing that is going to be universally persuasive and actually prove anything about it is wishful thinking. But I do find this debate fascinating in itself. The esotericists, with a capital E, may well be over-interpreting the evidence. We probably can't really create an overly cogent picture of what Plato was trying to do at this late date, and especially to make a kind of coherent methodology of esotericism that fits all the evidence. But some of the anti-esotericists seem to me positively asinine in their willingness to ignore evidence because it makes Plato seem messy or it doesn't add up. It's still evidence, guys. Deal with it or stop bothering us. Now, that's about it for our quick survey of the esoteric reading of Plato this week. We shall be revisiting it in detail in the course of the podcast as we discuss particular authors. But we should mention at this stage that we haven't really done justice to the modern arguments over Platonic esotericism. We've basically picked out one important argument that's gone on, but there have been many others. What about the ideas circulating in recent decades, which try to take into account Plato's obviously coy uses of mathematical imagery and harmonic theory? What was traditionally known as Platonic Pythagoreanism, but which we might call Plato's mathematical esotericism? What about other influential readers of Plato, like Leo Strauss, with his problematic theory of Platonic esotericism, which can find the exact opposite meaning to the surface meaning within Platonic texts? So Strauss reads the Republic in a way that is completely counter to the way everyone else reads the Republic. And what, finally, about the further dimension of Platonic thought, which some listeners may be thinking about, the idea of a knowledge which cannot be transmitted because it is literally ineffable. This certainly appears in the thought of the late Platonists, but do we find it in Plato himself? These and many more flavors of esoteric reading will cross the shifting screen of our consciousness as we consider Plato and his successors in Western esotericism. But before we leave our introduction to the idea of Platonic esotericism as such, it would be well to consult with an expert on the kinds of esoteric reading which were current in ancient Platonism. And who better than Professor Peter Strzok, a man who knows a thing or two about ancient esoteric discourse in general and esoteric hermeneutics in antique Platonism in particular. So join us next time for a fascinating interview with him. And until then, be like the true wisdom of the seventh Platonic epistle, which is not at all sayable. And stay esoteric. <laughs>